You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. So this morning we're going to be in Psalm 38. So if you've got a Bible, you're going to want to find that. Um, I'll give you a couple other verses along the way, but that's the primary passage that we're going to be looking at. And it fits so well with where we've been already in worship this morning, um, the, the verse and taking time for confession, um, the songs remembering that Jesus sets us free from sin. Um, you're going to see all of that um, come to play in the passage that we're looking at this morning. I want to uh, confess a little bit to you. This is maybe a late confession. Um, a couple of things. My first couple of years in Lexington, um, was getting to know everybody and all of that, and you know, getting to know how things work in the community. And we had a church picnic in Elwood. Anyone know where Elwood is from Lexington? It's like 20 miles south. So we're down in Elwood, church picnic, everybody is there. After the picnic, our kids are young, they're tired, they needed to be home an hour before we left. Um, anyone been there with kids? And so we're doing that, I'm in a hurry to get home, and I got pulled over for my first speeding ticket on that road between Elwood and Lexington. Uh, here's the deal you need to know that there's only like one real road you're gonna use to get between those two places. And so the whole church drives by to see their pastor <laughs> getting his first speeding ticket in uh, Gosford County. Anyway, exciting. Um, I also, I tried early on to have a political career and it totally went down in flames. Um, middle school. Junior high, back then, eighth grade, I was running for like class treasurer or something nerdy like that. Anyway, I didn't think I was popular enough to be president, um, but maybe treasurer, so I was going for it. But a week before the elections, you know, the principal comes in, they had, you know, police dogs on, on campus doing locker checks and all that stuff, and they had a list of like 40 names that they called, come to the cafeteria, the last period of the day. So these were all the kids we knew that hung out where, you know, the, the weed restroom and that kind of stuff, all those, all those kids, and then me. And that really wasn't me um, at that stage. But I got there and I got totally busted for having seven library books in my locker that I had not checked out legally. I know. It's, isn't that the nerdiest thing you could ever get in trouble for? But I did, my wife picks on me mercilessly for that still. See, our library had a rule, you can only take out one or two books at a time and I needed more than that. And their security system was not that great. Um, but I, I wasn't as smart because I'd keep them in my locker at school anyway, I got busted. So confession, sin, life has, life has hard moments, doesn't it? And a lot of them, if they just came one at a time, stacked in order with a breather in between, they'd be okay. They'd be manageable. But it seems like when they come, they dogpile a little bit, or a lot. And when they dogpile, we start wondering, maybe, you know, is God still paying attention to me? Um, or maybe he's paying the wrong kind of attention. Maybe God's out to get me right now. Maybe, I don't know, maybe God just has it in for me. I'll tell you that the worst kind of problems that we face 
are the ones that we realize are our fault. When you know you're getting dogpiled, when you know things are rough, and if you're honest, you think back through and realize, yeah, I overshot this one. I overestimated my ability to repay that debt. Or, you know, whatever. I thought it wouldn't be a big deal. I thought I wouldn't get caught. I thought the consequences wouldn't be that bad. But now that they're piling up, it's bad. Sometimes, here's the truth, the the danger before we look at the passage is, is this. We could think about God's discipline and the consequences for sin and start to live in fear. And I don't want you to do that. I want to just say this on the front end. The point of the passage is not that we live in fear, waiting for God to wrap our knuckles every time we get a half a toe on the line or over the line. But there is a reality. God saves us. He loves us. He forgives us but he loves us too much to let us camp out with destructive sin in our lives. And when that happens, because God's a good father and a loving father, he disciplines us. He confronts us. He challenges us. Like the storm that he sent to interrupt Jonah's plans, God allows storms. In fact, sometimes he sends storms to get our attention, to redirect us, to refine us, and to get us back on track. The question for us is, how will we respond when we realize that's what's happening? Because God doesn't make us do anything. But he does parent us in a perfect way. It's not if, but when. When a moment of discipline hits your life and hits mine, Psalm 38 gives us an example of how to respond, of how to think about those moments when we realize we're being disciplined and it's our fault. That what we're living through, we brought on ourselves because we thought sin would be a good idea. And God is trying to help us out. The longer we resist or resent God, the longer it drags out, the more severe it might get. But the sooner we respond and turn back to him, the easier the lesson becomes and the more transformation we experience. So that's kind of the setup. Um, You should have found, hopefully, Psalm 38 by now. I want us to work our way through this and see what God has. And, you know, Joe told me he preached a long time, um, but I brought a timer. I didn't start it yet, but I'm going to start it right now. How about that? I should have started it 12 minutes ago, probably. But you'll understand. Um, I care about you. I want you to hear what God says. Psalm 38, what do I do when I realize it's my fault? It says it's a psalm of David for the memorial offering. Verse 1, this is David praying to the Lord. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath. Now, I want you to see something here. David isn't trying to escape God's discipline. But he's both affirming and asking for God, God, does discipline you're giving me? God, I'm asking you 
Don't do this in anger. He knows it's God. In the next verse, he says, Your arrows have sunk into me. Your hand has come down on me. I want to give you a bottom line principle just from these two verses. When we experience God's discipline and we know it's our fault, the bottom line is we need to embrace God's discipline as soon as we realize it. We need to accept it. We need to have David's attitude here where he says, he knows, God, it's your arrows that have sunk into me. It's your hand that's come down on me. This isn't just an accident. This isn't um, just a simple cause and effect. This is an intentional work of God in my life. 1 Peter 5, I don't think I gave you this verse, but if it grabs you, look, 1 Peter 5 around verse 7. God says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he'll exalt you at the right time. One of the ways we humble ourselves is we embrace God's discipline without blaming, without making excuses, without accusing him of being unfair or unjust. In fact, injustice sometimes is easier to bear than justice. Instead of asking, how come God would do this to me, we really ought to ask, how come we don't experience more discipline more often? Because if we're honest, we probably could use it. But our God's a gracious Father. He knows. Adam and Eve, when they experienced sin, and they realized that they would be under discipline, what did they do? What did they do? Do you remember? They hid, yeah, just like we want to. We want to hide the sin. We want to hide the evidence. We want to hide ourselves if there's nothing else we can do to escape. But God in his grace, he came and he asked, where are you? Not because he didn't know where they were. He knew where they were. He knew where to come and ask. And he asked knowing that they would hear it. And he was waiting for them to respond, to embrace him coming to them, that's the whole gospel, isn't it? We sin and God comes to us. The incarnation of Jesus in flesh, the sacrifice on the cross. God took every step possible to come to us as sinners. But he waits for us to respond. Too often we resist and resent, we minimize. And in this passage, what we see David doing is instead of running and hiding from God, he leans into it. He just comes to God in prayer, God, I know you're disciplining me. He names it. I know your hand is on me. He names it. God, all I'm asking is that you would be merciful in this discipline that you're bringing. So what do we do? How do we embrace it? The first thing is to embrace the reality of God's discipline. There are some in this world, some even who are pastors and religious people would say, my God is all love, and because he's all love, my God would never do anything that would harm anyone. That isn't biblical. That isn't biblical. Right? The surgeons, medical doctors, nurses, medical professionals, they take a Hippocratic oath. They, they take an oath to do no harm. You say, well, what does that mean? Anyone have surgery? Anyone have surgery without anesthetic? 
surgery hurts, doesn't it? It hurts. What happened to your oath? Do no harm. Well, sometimes we have to do a, a temporary harm to bring a deeper healing. And God unpacks that in his word. He disciplines us for our good. He disciplines us to bring healing. If we accept that, if we embrace that, that that's the first step to responding properly to God's discipline. Not blaming him for being an abuser. Not blaming him for being unfair. But acknowledging, God, I know you're good. And I know this is from you. And I know it has a good purpose. And so I'm going to take the deep breath and I'm going to work this out with you. Look at how David works this out with God as he prays. If we go on in verse 3 to 8, he describes what he's experiencing. He says, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation, God. He knows, God, this because of you, I'm feeling the weight of this. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. He owns it. It's because of your discipline. It's because of my sin. That's why I am where I am. My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. In fact, verse 6, he says, I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. I'm crushed to the ground. All day I go about mourning. My sides are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. He says, I groan. Notice this, because of the tumult, because of the storm in my heart. What bothers David most is not whatever physical pain he's feeling, and he describes he's got physical pain. He's feeling sick. He's feeling exhausted. He's feeling worn out. But what bothers him the most is the storm in his heart. So he knows he has to own it. It's his sin. He's disappointed God. He's gone against God. He's risked his relationship with God. He knows that when we sin and we're rebellious, that God takes a different posture towards us. And it's hurting David in a soul-deep way. So here's the thing. We embrace the reality of God's discipline. We need to know God's discipline for sin. It's real. It's real. We need to embrace the rightness of His discipline. If I speed, I should get the ticket. My wife never gets tickets. I haven't had very many. I had more when I was younger than I do now. She never gets tickets. We were in Lexington 25 years, which is long enough to watch kids grow up and all of that. She got pulled over our last year there by one of our middle son's friends from school who was his first year city police force. He pulled her over, he walked up to the door, she rolled down the window, and then he was stunned and stuttered at who he just pulled over. He'd been on our house a lot, you know. <laughs> to his credit, he was respectful, he walked through it. Um, 
he let her off on a warning and then called his sister and other friends who immediately gave my wife a lot of crap <laughs> about almost getting a ticket from, uh, from Edwin. He's a great guy. But she knew, and she told him, she said, hey, you're doing your job. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of how you've grown up. I was speeding. You should give me a ticket. That's what our attitude should be. That's how we embrace God's discipline. It's real, and He's right to do it, and we should be willing to receive it. Here's the caveat. That's why I don't want us to live in fear. Not every bad thing that we experience is God's discipline for our sin. In fact, a lot of it just isn't. Some of it's we just live in a fallen world where sin has so impacted things that everything is hard. Genesis 3, the curse said, now your work will be hard. Now your relationships will be hard. We discover that in Genesis 3. There's a hardness in this world that we live through that is because of sin in general. Sometimes we experience hard things because of someone else's sin. As a pastor, I've had a lot of conversations about a lot of things with people. When a husband or wife calls and they're broken because their spouse is having an affair, the pain they're feeling is because of someone else's sin. And sometimes the pain that we feel it's real, and it's hard, and it's someone else's. So I don't want you to walk out of here and say, everything I experience is God's discipline. That's not what I'm saying. But there are times when the hard thing we're experiencing is God's discipline. Because He is trying to get our attention to turn us back from our sin into a deepening relationship with Him. We need to embrace it by running to Him in prayer. I believe exactly like what David is doing here. He doesn't hide from God. He doesn't blame God. But he comes to God and he names what's happening and what he's experiencing and what it is doing to his soul. This heavy burden that's too heavy for him and the groaning of his heart. But it's not enough just to acknowledge it. We need to do what you already did in worship this morning. The second thing, we need to embrace God's discipline with authentic confession. With authentic confession. Anyone tired of political confessions? Celebrity confessions? Retired of that? How do celebrity and political confessions go? Yeah. I didn't mean to. I'm sorry. And it's always a qualified, isn't it? I'm sorry if what I did, what I said, might have offended anyone. It is so general and noxious, it's hardly a confession at all. It almost is making you, you know, I'm sorry that you're such a sissy that what I did hurt your oversensitive little feelings. That's kind of how the confessions go, right? This isn't what God's talking about. God calls us to do what David did. Let's not beat around the bush. 
Let's not couch it. Let's not sugarcoat it. Let's own it. Let's name it. Four times in this, he owns it. Your arrows have sunk into me. There's no soundness. Why? Because of my sin, he says in verse 3. Because of my sin. Verse 4, my iniquities have gone over my head. Verse 5, my wounds stink and fester. Why? Because of my foolishness. In other words, I was stupid. That was dumb. I did it. I shouldn't have done it. I'm sorry that I did it. In fact, in verse 18, he says, I confess my sin and I am sorry for my sin. Some confessions we hear in the world today are, are yes buts. I'm sorry I punched that guy in the face on national TV, but he did this. I'm sorry I did that to you, but you did this first. There's no yes buts when we're coming to Jesus confessing our sin. Part of that is he's totally holy and there's no but we could express that holds water when it comes to him. Because he does everything right. And if, we're, if something's wrong with us in Jesus, it's not because he's wrong, is it? It's because something's off in us. We have to come with that assumption, with that humility. We need to embrace discipline with confession. In this passage, what we see, we're saying, O Lord, my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails. The light of my eyes is gone from me. He describes all this weight, but never once does he blame God for it. Never once does he make an excuse for it. But four separate times he owns it. It's my sin. It's my foolishness. It's my iniquity. And at the end he says, I confess it and I regret it. I'm sorry for it. This is the right response. When we realize, when we're wondering if what we're experiencing is the discipline of God, we run to him and we talk it out. And we own our part. We name it. We confess it. He affirms towards the end even his commitment to do what's right. I love how he says this in verse 20. He says, they, there are those who render me evil for good. They accuse me because I follow after good. The fact that you sin doesn't mean you lost your salvation or you're not a believer. Sometimes there are those who know you're a Christian who are waiting for you to trip up. And when you trip up, they're going to accuse and dogpile. That happens. We all have people in our lives that are ready to do that to us. And that's happening to David. In fact, he prays this out with God. God, he says, this is happening. Can you please help me? Can you discipline me in your mercy and protect me from what others might do and from what others are doing? The fact is that there are people who so hate the idea of God that if you claim to follow God and you show weakness and you show sin, they're going to hold that over your head 
as long as they can. David just names that before God. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't argue. He doesn't make it more than it is, in fact, in this. In verse 13, he he models what Jesus would do later. He said, I am like a deaf man and I don't hear. I'm like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I become like a man who does not hear in whose mouth there are no rebukes. He's talking about how he responds to those who are accusing him. Justifiably because of his sin. But he's acknowledging in repentance, God, I still want to pursue right. I want to do right. I didn't do right here. I confess it. I regret it. Can you forgive me? Here's the truth. God's discipline is meant to turn us from sin. Revelation 3.19, God says, Those who I love, I reprove and discipline. That's the first half of the verse. The second half, he says, So be zealous and repent. God says, I love you too much to not speak up. I love you too much to let this happen. So I'm bringing it to you so you can come to your senses and learn and repent. That's what God does for us. Anyone live with the fear of toddlers? Yeah. We lived... uh, We went to seminary in Dallas where we lived was um, apartments on the edge of downtown. Um, There was no yard. It was all concrete. It's on a busy corner. Um, And while we were there, there was nothing else to do, so we had three children while we were there. So our children there heard us say more than once, you don't go outside by yourself. That changed in Lexington. But downtown Dallas, concrete, you don't go outside by yourself. You go outside with kids and you want them to not run in the street. So you give them direction. Don't run in the street. If you're afraid what's going to happen, in fact, a friend of ours, that we were with them and their daughter started to run towards the street and they hollered to try and stop her, but she kept going. And when she hit the curve, she tripped and fell down and scraped her knee and her arm and her face. And then was crying and, you know, hurt and all of that. And that was bad. But if she hadn't tripped, she would have been in the street and hit by a car. So the scrapes and the bruises and the pain were actually a blessing. Because she's still alive. Sometimes God's discipline is like tripping us on the curb. And we feel like that's the worst thing that would happen, but because we're spiritually two or three, we don't understand the really worst thing that was about to happen if God hadn't intervened and tripped us up before we got any further. God's discipline, it's meant for our good. It's meant to be a blessing. And if in our hearts, if we can trust that and believe that and embrace that, it helps us to come to God and instead of fighting and screaming about our pain and his discipline, it helps us repent. In fact, repentance and confession, that's really the only path out of discipline. 
God brings it so that we will repent and confess and get back on track with him. Abraham Lincoln, Civil War. Civil War was 1861 to 1865. In the middle of that season, he did something significant. From a Christian standpoint, may have been the turning point of the end of that struggle. 1863, he designated April 30th as a day of national humiliation and repentance. And here's part of what he called for, what he wrote in that proclamation. He says, it's the duty of nations as well as men who owe their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sin and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with hope that the genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. Now catch what he says here. I want you to see the dots that Abraham Lincoln connected from God's word. He says, the awful calamity of the Civil War which now desolates our land may be a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins. How could God ever allow something that awful to happen? Lincoln was quick to see this. God was getting our attention as a nation for our presumptuous sins. The needful end of our national reformation as a whole people intoxicated with success. We have become self-sufficient, too self-sufficient to feel the need for his redemption and his grace. We've been too proud to pray to the God that made us. We've grown in numbers, wealth, and power, but we have forgotten God. 1861. How much more do you think we have forgotten God in our time? Confession. I'll give you one more. In China, 2018, China's an example of godliness for us, right? So believers in China are an example of godliness. There are areas in China experimenting with confession as a way to deal with uh, traffic tickets. They found people getting tickets and getting warnings wasn't stopping it, so they would reduce the number you had to pay on a ticket if you would do a social media confession and if your confession got a minimum of 20 likes. Okay, public confession. We don't use social media that way, at least not with actual confession. But God isn't talking about that either. God is talking about 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What God's looking for when we realize we're under discipline is, I did it. You're right. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Can you forgive me? And can you clean me? So I don't do that anymore. Confession and repentance. 
this is where he wants us to go. The last thing I want to pick up for this last point, verse 13 to 15. I read 13 and 14. He says, I'm like a deaf man I don't hear. I'm like a mute man who doesn't open his mouth. I've become like a man who doesn't hear in whose mouth are no rebukes. Catch this, though, the next verse, 15. But for you, Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For you, Lord, I wait. What do we need to do? We need to embrace God's discipline with faith in his saving presence and in his saving purpose. When we realize we might be under God's discipline, it isn't our job to find a loophole, to find a way out, to find a human escape plan. Our job is to come to God and to confess, to repent, and then to wait. Because how he brings us out of discipline has got to be up to him. It's not up to us. We want to be like kids who get caught stealing mom and dad's car and going out and having a blast and coming back and experiencing the discipline. Let's say you don't get to use the car for six months. Your parents put an ankle bracelet on you. I don't know, something. My kids are grown. I don't have to think about what they do in the same way anymore. But the kid really repents and confesses and feels bad, and the parent still leaves a discipline. That's unfair, but I confess, but I repented. I said, I'm sorry. Well, the parent, in their wisdom, thinks that there still needs to be something that happens. Sometimes God does that to us, too. So we wait. We embrace his discipline with trust in what he chooses and how he chooses it. And that's what David does here. He says, Lord, I'm not listening to the other noise. I'm not listening to the other voices. I'm not listening to the accusations. I'm not listening to the affirmations. Oh, what you did, it wasn't so bad. I don't know why you think it's discipline. Don't listen to any of that. He says, God, I don't listen to anything but you. I wait for you. I listen for you. It's your answer that I know will come. That's what he's listening for. He understands that God knows him, and God sees him, and God is watching him, and God has a purpose for him. He understands that sin leads us away from God, but God knows how to bring us back. And he's waiting and watching for that to happen. Let me finish the psalm out. Verse 17, I'm ready to fall. My pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sins. Verse 19, my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. Many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good, they accuse me because I follow after good. These last two verses, look where David ends. He has two requests. Do not forsake me, O God. O my God, do not be far from me. In other words, he asks for God's presence. Sin separates us from God's presence. David has confessed, he's humbled himself, he's trusting God, he's asking God, stay with me. 
Stay with me. Stay with me. What are some of our favorite verses in the New Testament? Or the old? Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Because you're with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. By the way, the rod and the staff, instruments of discipline and direction. In fact, catch this, God's discipline is actually proof of his presence in your life. It's the opposite of Romans 1. Romans 1, for those without God, who have not trusted Christ, who have rejected God completely, it has this picture of the more they reject, God just gives them over to more and more sin. He just gives them to it. He releases them to it. But God doesn't do that with his children. With his children, as they embrace sin, he leans in and disciplines because the discipline is proof of his presence and the discipline is meant to bring you closer to keep you from distancing, but to draw you back. David says, God, don't forsake me. David also says, make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. Sin leads us away from God. Discipline is the proof of God's presence. Discipline is also the proof of God's saving purpose. It's the proof of his purpose. Sometimes we we water down what salvation is, don't we? Salvation is more than a ticket to a place. It's not just a reservation in heaven. Salvation is a complete transformation of who we are. Sin has corrupted us. The point of salvation is that through the blood of Christ, God remakes us. He transforms us. He removes the power of sin. He removes the impact of sin. Ultimately, He removes the presence of sin. His discipline on our lives in this world is part of the tools that He uses to begin that work even now. He transforms us into the image of Christ by removing and lessening the impact and the grip of sin on our souls. We should see that as a good thing. Lord, thank you for disciplining me. Thank you for training me. Thank you for helping me. I had a a music teacher. Music was my sport. I was slow, uncoordinated, and small as a kid. One time I was skinny. It's hard to believe that now, but I was at one time. This teacher knew that my heart and my anxiety were off about why I was playing, and she disciplined me by saying, John, I'm not going to allow you to enter any competitions for the next year. We're going to work on your technique. We're going to learn stuff. You're going to get better. We're going to improve how you play, but you're not competing anywhere because she knew that what was happening in me because of the competitions was actually getting in the way of my ability to learn the way I needed to learn. And it was a good thing for me. It's a good thing for me. 
Jesus is even smarter than that piano teacher was. He knows what we need, and he knows how to discipline us to reset our hearts, to lessen the grip and impact of sin. It's proof of his saving purpose. He actually is refining us. It's not a pretend. It's not a fantasy for the future. It's a reality now. And that gives us confidence in what the future can bring. So what do we do? We cry out like David with faith in God's presence and his purpose. I don't know where you are today. You may be in the middle of a season of discipline. You may not be. If you are, I hope you'll spend more time this week lingering in this psalm and that you will let yourself do what David is doing. He just brings it to God. He owns it. He names it. He confesses. He names the frustration. He says in the middle, God, my family is withdrawing from me and my enemies are dogpiling on me. God, help me. And at the end, he comes down with this cry, God, don't leave me. God, save me. It's okay for saved people to ask God to save them still. Not because we're afraid we've lost our eternal salvation, but because we still have saving that needs done from how sin impacts us today. God, save me from how sin is impacting me today. Cry out to God with faith that he loves you, that he's present, that he has a good plan, that his discipline even is good, and that you embrace and you submit to it by leaning into him, not by withdrawing and hiding. I hope this makes sense. I want to give you a moment Before we're done, what I say is not so important, but what what God's Word says is of ultimate importance. And the Holy Spirit's real, and I, I believe for you this morning, as for me, that the Holy Spirit has highlighted some part of His Word that is just for you. I don't want you to leave the room without noting what that is. So I want to be quiet. I I want to pray over you in a moment, but I want to invite you to take a minute and just pray, God, what is it you want from this passage for me this week? I want you to just ask that prayer and then to be quiet, maybe with your Bible open, even, and let God put an exclamation point on what he wanted you to hear today. Let's all close our eyes and and pray together just for a minute. God, I, I pray you'll speak to us by your Spirit. Show us what you want us to take from this today. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.